All right, I want to invite you to find your seats. We'll definitely have time afterwards for fellowship. And now that the weather has finally gone from the 90s back into the 70s, it's good to just hang and be outside and enjoy God's good creation for us. My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together this morning. Uh, we are in the book of 2 Samuel. So if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. And there you can use one of those Bibles. Um, and if you don't have one or, or you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that with you. Uh, we want you to be able to read and know a little bit about more about the God that we worship outside of just Sunday mornings. But we're glad that you're here with us on this Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to just read verses 1 through 17 and then jump down to verse 26 and 27 as we look at um, this passage this morning. Just to give a little context, the people of God are in war. They're in a war against the Ammonites. David has established his kingdom. It's growing. And as they engage the Ammonites, uh, we come to this passage in the midst of war in this encounter with David. So let's um, read God's word together, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw the woman or saw that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman and one said is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness then she returned to her house and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and, some, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that made him, he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. 
And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Jump down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning, and often we go to Scripture to read of the ways that um, read your word that encourages our hearts. Things like the Psalms and of, of stories that enliven us. And yet we realize in the full breadth of your scriptures, there's also hard, challenging passages like this. Um, but Lord, we know that it is still the same words from your mouth that are breathed out. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, transform us, make us more like you so that we might um, not only give you glory, but that it would truly be for our good. Won't you do that good work we ask by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at this chapter, chapter 11 this morning, uh, it's a famous passage, right? Whether you grew up in the church or maybe you didn't, this is a very familiar passage for all of us. But what's interesting for me was how surprised I was by the emotions that I, that I felt reading such a familiar passage that I heard growing up my entire life. Everything from shock to disbelief to anger and actually confusion. And the reason I felt these things was because just these last two weeks, we looked at David, this man who truly exhibited the character of God, right? If you, don't, if you weren't here or if you forgot, back in chapter 8, Two weeks ago, we looked at David and how he administered justice and equity to all the people in his nation, in his kingdom. God was growing his kingdom north, south, east, and west in chapter 8. And what we read in the conclusion of that story was that David, the king of Israel, was administering and practicing justice for every single person from young and old, low income, high income, whoever it was, Justice and righteousness was being administered because of David. Then last week we looked at chapter 9 and we saw David, the king of Israel, not only administer justice, but practice hesed, covenant love, loving kindness to someone that deserved death, Mephibosheth. This son of Jonathan, when in that culture and practice, it was right that you would destroy and kill or imprison anyone that belonged to the previous regime. But because of a promise that he made to Jonathan, his best friend, he honored that promise to this crippled son of his, Mephibosheth. Justice, righteousness, loving kindness, covenant love, the love of God that David exhibited in these last two weeks that we looked in 2 Samuel. And yet here we literally flipped the page from last week and in a flick of a switch, we see all of that just gone. We see an evil, wicked act by, a, by the king of Israel. Now the writer the narrator here is just as shocked 
Because in a turn, with the war going on, what does he say, the writer say in verse 2? It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. And what did he do? It's a long passage, but just to summarize for us what David's wickedness and evil and sin that he committed was, he rises from his couch in the middle of a lazy afternoon, right? I mean, he has all the wealth now. His kingdom is growing. And in the midst of war, when David, in all the other stories previous to this, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he was very active in going about and leading his people into war and battle. But here we see him just lounging in his bedroom or in his living room. And he gets up. And he looks out on top of his roof and from a distance he sees a woman bathing. And the writer says that she was absolutely beautiful. But he doesn't just leave it at that, right? He inquires to find out who is this woman. And he finds out that this woman is the wife of Uriah. Now, Uriah isn't just any random dude. If you, been, if you just kind of read through First and Second Samuel quickly, that name would have been familiar to you, and it's very familiar to David. Uriah was one of those loyal, valiant men who came alongside David when Saul was trying to kill him. Remember, there were those 600 men that came into the wilderness with David because they recognized that David was God's anointed, and Uriah was one of those men. And later on, it records in history that he was one of the, most, one of the 30 most valiant noble men for David. So David owed Uriah his life. And instead, David takes Uriah's wife. And in so doing, he finds out that she has a child in the womb. And now David has to make a decision. And he quickly begins to scheme, conjure up a way to be able to hide the fact that this child is his. And he needs to attribute this child to Uriah. So what does he do? In a, in a string of events, in a string of these scheming ways of his, he first tries to bribe him, bring him into his home, and send him back to his house. But what happens? Uriah, Uriah tells David, how can I go back home when all the men are fighting? When the Ark of the Covenant is out in the tent and his men are out in the fields, I can't go back home and be with my wife. So he sleeps out in the hallway. And then the second opportunity that David comes up with is to get him drunk. So then he would be sent back to his home. But what does he do? He stays out in the hallway and sleeps. And what you realize is that in the midst of David's wickedness and in his scheming, you see Uriah lifted up as the only noble man in this story. He's the one who's actually faithful. And so what does David have to do? He comes up with a way to basically get rid of him by killing him. He tells Joab, his servant, to put him in the fiercest battle. And knowing that it would be the fiercest battle, draw all the men back except for Uriah so that Uriah would die. And so he does. He dies. And word gets back to Bathsheba. She weeps, laments, mourns the loss of her husband, not knowing what has happened. And David brings her into her, his home, makes it her his wife, and they conceive a child. You go from a man who practices hesed, covenant love, to lust. 
A man who spared Saul. Remember in 1 Samuel? A man who over and over again said, this is God's, choosing, God's chosen man. I cannot lay a hand on him to murdering Bathsheba's husband. One commentator said it this way, here is the covenant king himself ruling with oppression and heartlessness. Here is the one who puts Bathsheba's at his table and Uriah in his grave. Welcome to Thugsville. I thought that was well said. And more than us trying to put all the blame on David or to scoff at him or to say that I would never be like David, we must actually spend this moment seeing ourselves in David's shoes, that we are just as vulnerable to sin. And that's what I want to do here this morning briefly, is to look at the nature of sin. What is the nature of sin when we look at this account and this story? And the first thing we see here is that sin is so predictable. Sin is so predictable. Look at the verbs that are attributed to David in just short three verses, in verses 2, 3, and 4. First, David rose. He saw. He sent. He inquired. He took. He lay. Those are the verbs used for David. And as you read that as an Israelite or as followers of Jesus, knowing the scriptures, that should actually be very familiar to us in a sense in bringing us and hearkening us back to the beginning of the creation story, right? In Genesis 3, our original mother Eve, do you know what happens with her? This is what's recorded in Genesis 3. She saw, she took, she gave, and then Adam eats. This is the predictable nature of sin. And in the midst of how predictable it is, it is very effective in getting us to a place where we do not trust in the Lord's provision. This is how it works. You desire it, you take it, and you act upon it, whether eating or laying or whatever sin we commit. This is at the heart of it. It's predictable because it's a failure to believe that God is actually good and will provide for me, both for David and Adam and Eve. They knew better. Adam and Eve were in the beautiful garden that God had created, and everything was very good. They had everything at their disposal, and yet in that moment when the serpent says, did God really say you can't eat? They become and act like God, not trusting in his good provision, not trusting that God had created a moral fabric in this world that when you go against it, what happens? You get splinters. And here, David does the exact same thing. It's no different. He saw, he inquires, he takes, and he lays. This is the nature of sin. It is so predictable. And David even knew better than Adam and Eve. He wrote these words in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. He knew that God created a moral fabric in this world, the grain of how everything functions and how we're to treat one another, how we're to treat one another's bodies and the way that we are to treat ourselves and the way that we are to worship God. All of that was laid out. And what does David do? He lacks the trust and begins to doubt that God truly is for him and he desires and he takes it's a failure to trust God in his goodness and his love for us it's predictable 
and yet we fall short every single day. That's why I think in many ways this sin is so predictable for us. And while our particulars might be different from David, we must recognize that we are no different from David. The one that administered justice is the same one who leverages his own power as king and destroys a marriage. The one that showed kindness to Mephibosheth is the same one who murders a loyal husband. It's the same person. And we are just like David. Sin is so predictable. But the other thing we have to see here about the nature of sin is that sin is never isolated. It's never isolated. In a culture that we actually believe, even as followers of Jesus, that we belong to ourselves and we are independent and my actions impact nobody but myself. It's just absolutely not true. When you are honest with yourselves, you realize you belong to so many other people, the people you don't even know. And sin is very much in the same way. There is such a ripple effect, a domino effect of how sin causes so much pain and destruction and chaos. And it leaves a trail of destruction. And we see that here in David's actions. His actions are not left to his own self. But it impacts, first of all, Bathsheba, right? She conceives a child. And though we don't actually, we can't read into it more than what the text says, let's realize and let's put it out there that David is king. And the way the, the narrator says it is, he took her. And so she becomes a casualty of his sin and of his misuse of power. But not only, not only of Bathsheba, but we see Joab, his servant, and that name was recorded and said over and over again. But think about the situation that he finds himself in. <laughs> Here he is loyal to the king. And yet he knows without a doubt that he's putting Uriah at the forefront of this battle and he's calling everyone else back. He knows what he's doing. And now his conscience is now at stake because he has basically participated in the manslaughter of Uriah. But also, of course, Uriah, a man who is faithful and noble, is found dead at the end of the story because of David's actions and his infidelity. And now Uriah is no longer alive. But think about even outside of that, the, the casualty and the destruction that's left behind because of all of those that were impacted because of Uriah's death, family and friends and his soldiers, all those that now are lamenting and weeping and grieving the loss of their loved one. You see this? Sin impacts so many people and there's a ripple effect because of one man's actions and his decisions. It's true of all of us and the nature of sin that it is never isolated. But the last thing we see here briefly is that sin it cannot be hidden. Sin can't be hidden. Now here, humanly speaking, you look at the story and you're like, dude, David's good. I mean, he has schemed. He has played this out perfectly as a king. He has used all of his resources to be able to hide the fact of what he's done. Right? I mean, he's plotted and planned and done it perfectly. He is free of the burden, technically. The truth has been concealed. The guilt now can pass. And the monarchy is saved because now Bathsheba is his wife and all those will think that this child belongs to him. 
But we know that's not true because the writer gives us one little detail that tells us sin can never be hidden. And it's the last verse of this chapter. What does it say in verse 27? But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The actual liter- the literal translation of that is not actually that. That's too, that's too nice. The actual translation is the thing David had done was evil in Yahweh's eyes. The thing that David had done was evil and wicked in Yahweh's eyes. Meaning, David, though he had thought he had gotten away with it, God had been watching the entire time. You see, the way this is written tells us that the silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. He is there. He is present. And he will have to own that responsibility. And we'll see that next week. With the consequences that come and with the conviction that is laid upon him, he has to deal with it because Yahweh's eyes have seen. This is what one commentator said. The king may act, the king may kill, the king may be self-satisfied. The king, however, is not capable of revising moral reality. The king may imagine he has escaped the hard, non-negotiable reality of the old Torah tradition. The king may imagine he is morally autonomous and subject to no one. In the end, however, the end of the narrative, there is Yahweh with another moral vision. The The narrative leaves us in no doubt that the eyes of Yahweh will outsee the eyes of David. David may not see clearly, blinded as he is by fear, lust, and power, but that does not change the moral reality to which David must answer. David may have Bathsheba's flesh, David may have Uriah's blood, but he will have to face Yahweh's eyes. You see, we are never outside of God's vision. He sees all things, and no matter how Scheming we are, how resourceful we are, God sees. Nothing can be hidden from his eyes. And you see the destructive, scary nature of sin. Right? Here we see in the ways that sin so impacts every single one of us. It is so predictable, and yet we all fall so short every single day. We see that it is never isolated and that it can never be hidden. And in some ways, that it can leave us here in despair and hopeless, knowing that what can we do if the king of Israel, God's chosen, cannot even live up to the standards that God has called them to? How can we? And if you're honest with yourself, even as our elder Leo shared vulnerably how he can feel like a fraud and an imposter. We all, if we're honest with ourselves, feel like that every single day in your families, with your friendships at school, in church, at work, and you are left hopeless. But a story like this also should create in us a longing for something better and something truer. Something that would give us hope. And that's where we have to see our need for a Savior. And it's answered in Jesus. I know we always end our time looking at Jesus, but hear how much more profound and necessary it is that we need someone who can actually give us the hope when we are so desperate in need. When someone like David falters and falls and tries to hide and conceal. Where does that leave us? 
Well, it leaves us here realizing that we need a Savior. One of the most sweetest moments for me as a parent is this. When my kids screw up, you know, big or small or whatever, and we send them to their rooms, one of the sweetest moments for me is when I go to their rooms and I address whatever thing that they have done, whether to me or to my wife or to my kids or to whatever going on. And where do I always point them to? I always point them to Jesus. As as much as they're broken, I am broken. And the only answer that I can have and point them to is Jesus because he is our only hope. Because in him, he was perfect. He lived the life that we cannot live. And he died the death that we deserve so that in our failures, living our imposter life as a fraud, we can actually lay down our guard and say, I am broken. I fall short every day. I try to hide. I try to conceal. I try to isolate my sin to myself. And I'm able to say, but I can be honest and vulnerable because Jesus has died and forgiven me and his love pursues me every single day and cleanses me and heals me and restores me and makes me new. And it's only by faith and repentance, faith and repentance every single day that we're able to know that there is hope because of Jesus. This is David's story. You know what we always seem to throw out there? And you've heard this if you've been following us for the last year in the book of Samuel. But we always attribute David. What's he always referred to as? A man after God's own heart, right? And you're like, okay, a man after God's own heart? No way. Like, talk about disastrous. Like, how can we do that? That is so problematic here in the story. He's a man after God's own art. He cheats, he lies, he steals, he covets, he commits adultery. And obviously the first one, he has other gods other than God himself. Like, how can he be a man after God's own heart? Well, when you actually dig into the Hebrew of this phrase, it's not actually dependent on what David does or doesn't do. The way that this actually needs to be translated is, it, David is a man that God has set his heart on. See the difference? David is a man that God has sought after. God has chosen this man. Whereas Saul was chosen by the people, dependent on looks, his height, his moral fabric, whatever, his lineage, none of that matters. God chose David. God set his heart on David. And that is good news for us. And that is good for David's throne as well because it is through the line of David we get Jesus and God has set his heart on Jesus his son as well but it wasn't just to lift him up in exaltation but it was in his humiliation his suffering his death his his life so we might actually have hope in him that even when the worst is known about you love is still offered we don't have to hide We don't have to conceal. We don't have to live in shame because he holds you up and says, you are loved. You are adored. You are beautiful because of what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus has done for me. That we can have security in our relationship with our Savior. We can have security in our relationship with one another. Because in my brokenness, Jesus is lifted up. 
Jesus is exalted because of his life, his death, his work on our behalf. We are forgiven. And it's through faith and repentance we can be assured that we will be made new once and for all. And that's what this table is for. To remind us and give us the grace that we are forgiven people. And we can always come back to the Father because he pursues us. There's n- you cannot hide, you cannot run far away enough for Jesus to come and hold you up because of his love for us. So let's go with that kind of hope, that kind of confidence, knowing that he is for us and there's no condemnation for those who are in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, his work, his death that you have set your heart upon him. And because of him, we can come to you freely with all our mess, with all our brokenness, with all our hurt and pain, even all the destructive paths that we've left behind. We can come to you because you forgive us because of Jesus. So Lord, I pray that that would be our hope this morning as we leave, as we come and take and eat together, that you might strengthen us and remind us that we are yours. Nothing in this world can ever change that. Do that good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.